By, uh, by Palm Sunday, in a couple of weeks, we are going to have been in this series rooted and growing for about three months. And this series is, has been us exploring the essential nature of God's church. And what I said to you last week is that part of this exploration is us asking, uh, why should I give myself my time and my energy to be a part of a body of believers? That is something that we have to deal with each week. We make decisions about what we're doing with our time and where we're putting our energy. And when it comes to the church and Bible studies, whether it's our grow classes or gospel community groups or the gathering of the believers, we, we're we making decisions every week about how we spend our time. It's important for us to know from our heart why we feel we should be a part of a body of believers And so we've been looking in Scripture to see what God's purpose is in the local church. Because it is not a given anymore that people would just do that as part of tradition or their life. And so this series, we've called it Rooted and Growing. Our thought process there is this imagery of a tree, that we are rooted in Christ, in His Word, and in His Spirit, and then He builds us up. And as He builds us up, Our branches grow up and they grow out and they bear fruit. And that fruit is for His glory and for the good of others. And so we've been looking at things that we cannot do apart from a congregation of believers. Activities that God has called us to, purposes that He's called us to, that is part of us growing up and growing out and bearing fruit. So we've seen that we are rooted in in growing for worship. We are rooted in growing for holiness, for unity among one another, in love and care for each other, in service to one another, including the use of spiritual gifts, that we are rooted and growing for the building up of the church, including through New Testament prophecy and teaching. And we could go on and on, but I hope that this has been a priming of the pump for us, so to speak, in engaging our hearts And we're going to begin to wrap this series up with one singular topic over this week and next week. And that is that God has purposed for His church to practice justice. And that we are rooted and built up for that reason. And specifically, I want to make a case to you that we have a calling as a church to do justice in this community, and in the context that God has placed us. And as I say those words, that we are to do justice or practice justice, I don't know what goes through your mind. I don't know what your thought process is. And what I want to say to us is that probably each of us have has an idea of what justice is and what is meant by the words doing justice. And one of the things that I want you to ask of yourself over this week and next week is whether or not your perspective on doing justice is a biblical perspective or a cultural perspective. Because there is a difference. And it is my heart that we will see the biblical perspective on justice. If you have a Bible, if you'll go to Jeremiah chapter 9. And that's where we're going to start today. And if I could, let us let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for this morning and us being able to come together as a church. God, as we worship as we lead, as we participate in singing and prayer and reading, we are reminded of our humanity. We are reminded of how easily distracted we are, how we get focused on the wrong things. We are often discouraged where we should not be and perhaps encouraged where we should not be. This morning, Father, I pray that You will continue the work of focusing our hearts and our minds on Jesus. As Scott was just saying, He is God. So let everything that we do be centered on Him, Your Son, whom You have glorified because of His obedience to You. We ask this morning that He would be lifted high in our hearts and minds 
And I pray that You would bring back those who are wandering, You would save those who are lost, and You would strengthen those who are in Jesus by this Word. Teach us, God, this morning about You. Teach us about practicing justice. In Your name we pray. Amen. So Jeremiah 9, what Scott read for us. I want to give us the context of what is happening uh, as these words from Jeremiah are being spoken. And in order to understand that, we go all the way back to Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is given instructions from the Lord. And he is told to go to the temple. Go to the temple gate and stand there. And as worshipers are going into the temple, I want you to say these words. Now, I want you just to get that picture in your head. Imagine in our context that uh, there is a prophet and he has been told to go and stand outside the doors of a church. And as people go inside the church, he's supposed to say something to them. That's what's happening with Jeremiah. This is a very big church, but it's a very very large building, but he is there at the temple gate, and as people are going in, Jeremiah is saying to them, correct the course of your life. Change your practices, and God says He will let you live here. That's what Jeremiah is screaming at them, saying to them, change how you live. Change your practices, and God will let you stay in this land. Now imagine hearing that. Because in their minds, they're like, what's he talking about? We're going to worship. Why is he saying these things to us? And what unfolds over the next two chapters is a people that felt very safe in their lifestyle. A lifestyle that was sinful and corrupt. But they felt safe because they knew that they were the people among whom God had chosen to put His temple. At this time, to worship God, you went to a place. And that place was in Jerusalem, in this kingdom of Judah. And of all the places in the world, this people had been chosen as the people who would oversee and house the temple in their land. And so they could go and offer acts of worship as prescribed by the law. But Jeremiah tells them in these next two chapters that what God has seen is that while they are a people who go to the temple and worship, they are also a people that steal from one another. They murder. They commit adultery. They lie. They have idols. They are living lives completely disconnected from their worship acts. They leave the temple worshiping God, and they immediately go on sinning, Jeremiah says. And so God warns them. And it's important to note that it is God who is warning them. And God warns them, and He says through Jeremiah, I have persistently spoken to you, but you're not listening. I have continually called your name, and you're not answering. You feel safe in this religious routine that you have. Because of your ancestry and your tradition, you feel safe. But what I have said to you is obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you're not obeying my voice. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, and it will be well with you, but you're not walking in my ways. Jeremiah tells them that they are rejecting God's Word in favor of their own path. And because of that, they're a fruitless people. And of course, you would think that perhaps when God would discipline them, that they would listen. But God tells them in these chapters that I've disciplined you because of this, to get you to listen to me. But when I discipline you in the midst of your suffering, you don't look within and consider your own actions. Rather, you blame me. When these people were going through hard times that God had brought to get their attention, they would say, God's doomed us to perish. This is His fault. He's not moving on our behalf. 
But God says, in truth, you have wearied yourself with your own sin. You've moved from one evil to another evil, and you refuse to repent. And you would think that maybe their leaders could get their attention. But Jeremiah says their leaders, the scribes and the wise men and the prophets and the priests, they themselves have refused to listen because those leaders were guilty of being greedy. They were greedy for what they could get from the people. And they knew if they told the people what God was saying, that the people would not like them anymore. And so rather, the leaders would tell the people what they wanted to hear. They falsely reassured them that they had peace with God. And God told Jeremiah that they did not have peace. So God God says to these people that if you continue on this course, if you refuse to turn, I am going to take this building down. I am going to take the temple to its foundations and I am going to scatter you from this land to other nations. In other words, He was going to take from them everything that they had put their trust in. He was going to take from them their riches. He was going to take from them their place. He was going to take from them their traditions and the very temple that was meant for God, that had become their pride. He was going to take that temple from them. And it is within that prophecy, toward the very end of it, that Jeremiah utters these words, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows Me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For it is in these things that I delight, declares the Lord. I want to say to us this morning that everything we just talked about is Old Testament. But it is as applicable today as it was then. How we relate to God has changed. The covenant that we live under has changed. But these words stand for us. What is the boast of your life? What is the source of your pride? Paul would take this passage and he would quote it later to the church in Corinth when he would say to them, if you're going to brag, let your only brag be about Jesus. Let your only boast be that you know the Lord. Let that be the pride of your life, that He has given you the grace to understand Him. Anything else that you get to do, anything else that you accomplish, anything else that you live out should be subsequent to the boast that you know the Lord. And at the same time, if all the things that you hope to boast in in this life never come to fruition, it's okay because your true boast is that you know God. God says, let your boast be that you understand and you know me. Knowledge and understanding indicates intimacy with God. doesn't mean just head knowledge. But it, it means that you have a relationship with Him and that through that relationship you have been trained. And through that relationship you have observed what God is like. And the evidence of true intimacy with God is that you reproduce the qualities of God. That in your own life you reproduce what God is like in the manner which we are able to do so. And obviously that reproduction will be imperfect because God is perfect and we are not. 
But boasting in the Lord and having knowledge and understanding of Him means that we're going to grow and grow and grow in showing and reproducing the qualities of God, which include steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. So let's define these terms for a moment. Let's make sure that we understand what is meant by these terms. If you have a worship guide, there's some notes in there. If you want to do fill in the blank, you can. Steadfast love. Let's start with that term. Steadfast love refers to God's covenant faithfulness toward His people. Steadfast love refers to God's covenant faithfulness to His people. When He says that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, He means I am the Lord who is continually faithful to my people. This is not just a general love. Steadfast love, biblically, doesn't mean just, I love all people. It's a very specific type of love. In Nehemiah 9.17, for example, it is said that when God's people were in the Exodus, if you remember, when He had brought them out of Egypt and taken them to the Promised Land, in the wilderness, those people got so frustrated that they asked to go back to Egypt. That they looked at God and said, you've delivered us from slavery, now we would like to go back, please. And Nehemiah said, but even then, God was ready to forgive them. In the wilderness, they became impatient and they made idols of gold. And Nehemiah said, yet God did not forsake them. When they made for them statues and bowed down to those statues... God did not forsake them. Even when in their rebellion, God said they would face the discipline of wandering for 40 years. During those 40 years, He took care of them. And Nehemiah said, He provided for them so they lacked nothing. In the midst of an obstinate, rebellious people who asked to be let go back into slavery to serve other gods, Nehemiah said, God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That is one word in Hebrew. And it indicates God is always faithful to those who belong to Him. Even in their rebellion, God is faithful to those who belong to Him. I want to say to you today, that God is ready and eager to forgive all of those who He calls to Himself who will listen and respond. He shows covenant faithfulness to His people. Secondly, the term righteousness. Righteousness is what is right according to God's standards according to God's moral standards. This is really important for us. We can simply make the statement, perhaps you have as parents, do what's right. Well, that's that's a great statement. That's true. But who determines what's right? We live in a culture, in a world, as we have from the very beginning of time, that wants to decide for themselves what is right. You go to the judges, and that's all of what the judges was about. This series of the people of God turning to Him and then turning away from Him. And this refrain over and over that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Righteousness is doing what is right. Excuse me, righteousness is what is right according to God's moral standards, according to what God says is right. Psalm 19, 8 and 9 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. The rules of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether. And every one of us has to make a decision whether or not we agree with that. Whether or not we believe that what is actually right is from God. That whatever conforms to God's moral standard is right. And the only thing right in the world are the things that conform to His moral standard. Do we believe that? Do we agree with that? Our life will show that. The Bible says God alone is righteous, and therefore whatever God has ordained and taught is right. And church, listen, this is hard for us even when we're mature believers. 
We see things in the Word. We see certain doctrines. And we think, but that's not fair. But we're judging that based on our standard of what we think is right or wrong, fair or unfair. And God does not conform to our standard. We are told to bend to His. He alone is wise and perfect and glorious. And if He has ordained it, it is right. If He has taught it, it is right. And it is up to us to bend to that. So God practices steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. He practices righteousness. He sets the standards and He practices justice. Justice is acting based on God's perfect character and law. Justice is when we act, when we make decisions based on God's perfect character and law. Scripturally, righteousness and justice are barely distinguishable. As a matter of fact, some theologians treat righteousness and justice together in their commentaries. A.W. Tozer said that everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God. And anything in the universe is evil if it fails to conform to the nature of God. God is justice, which means that God acts justly, not because He conforms to some independent criteria, but because He is simply acting like Himself. When we say God is just, we mean that everything God does is justice. Not because He conforms to a human standard, but because He is the very standard of just. So whatever He does is justice. Every decision that we make, especially considering the context of our lives and our community and our society, every decision we make that aligns with God's character and aligns with His perfect moral standards is a just act. It is justice if it aligns with Him. And you see this same grouping of attributes throughout the Bible, but I put one of them in your study notes. Psalm 89.14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And steadfast love and faithfulness goes before Him. His throne sits on the foundation of righteousness and justice, of everything that is morally good, and of every decision based on that moral standard. And from His throne, from that righteousness and justice, God sends out steadfast love. We praise God because of His goodness. Imagine if He wasn't. Imagine if God was all-powerful, but not good. What would this world be like? We would live under complete terror all the time. But we serve a God who has set the standards, but those standards are set in covenant faithfulness and goodness. And therefore, we can praise Him for that. So when we talk about biblical justice, it is very critical that we understand this. You cannot separate any attribute of God from the others. You are not given the choice to say, I love the fact that God is merciful and gracious. Not really into the justice against sin. You can create a morality of justice based on picking and choosing God's attributes, but it is not biblical justice. Biblical justice means that we receive all of God's attributes together. He is faithful, 
He is merciful, He's gracious, He's good, and He's righteous, and He's just. He is all of these. And one cannot be emphasized over the other. And church, we cannot emphasize one of them over the other to try and make Him more palatable to the world that's watching us. That's not the pathway He's given us. God has not asked us to make Him more palatable to the world. God has asked us to live according to His attributes. And He will call the world to Himself through that. So how does all of this work out in these passages from Jeremiah? If you're still in Jeremiah, look back one chapter in chapter 9, toward the beginning of the chapter. Look at verses 5 and 6. Here's one of the issues that they were experiencing in that day. The misconduct of the people included deceiving their neighbor. In verse 6, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. To oppress is to mistreat someone. To oppress someone is to defraud them of what is right according to God's moral standard. And the reason that people often oppress other people is for their own gain. The reason that one person in the family of God would deceive another is so that they could get a benefit from it. The reason that they would mistreat a fellow man was because somehow it benefited them. And God called that oppression. Go back to Jeremiah 7, the very beginning of this in verses 5 through 7. This is where God is giving Jeremiah the word of what he's to do at the temple. And he's telling them, correct the course of your life, correct your practices. And he says to them in verse 5, if you truly amend your ways or correct your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, So what he is saying is, here's how I want you to correct your life. I want you to start being a people of justice. Start being a just people. And then he shows them some of the ways that they have been unjust. He says to them that you have oppressed the sojourner among you. In other words, you have mistreated and defrauded a foreigner from another country living in your land. You have mistreated them for your own gain. You have not taken care of them as they were among you. He says to them that you have oppressed the fatherless and the widow, two of the most vulnerable groups of people in a society. And this oppression of the fatherless and the widow may have been acts of exploitation, which would be a sin of commission, Or they may have simply been failing to take care of them. They may have been ignoring them, which would be a sin of omission. And he tells them that you have shed innocent blood and you've gone after other gods. And all of these are examples of injustice. They are acts of oppression because they break not only God's commands, but they break from His very nature. His people should not defraud others. Because they're a foreigner. His people should not defraud others by failing to take care of the vulnerable among them. His people should not deceive one another for their own gain. His people should not shed innocent blood. His people should not chase after other gods. His people were not acting in accordance to Him and in accordance to what delighted Him. They were acting against Him. They were practicing that which He hated. Sin and injustice are woven together and you can't separate them. To perpetrate injustice against someone is to sin. And all sin is somehow injustice. In your notes, that acts of injustice are those that violate God's nature. Acts of injustice are those that violate His commands. The prophet Hosea 
in Hosea 10 said that injustice is like a crop. And that crop comes up after a people have plowed iniquity. He paints this picture that you put seeds of sin in the ground and what you will get is injustice. If you and I in our hearts have sin, we will perpetrate injustice because that is the crop that comes from it. Do you remember what Jesus said when He was asked, what's the greatest command? He said, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then He said, and the second greatest command is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And He said, all Scripture relies on these two commands. So what we can say from that is whether it is the oppression of people or it is the worship of idols, all throughout the earth, injustice, injustice is born when we violate God's law to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we violate His law to love other people that have been made in His image. When we fail to love as God has called us to, the result is injustice. And even from within the church, injustice can happen. It can thrive when you and I fail to truly know God and be like Him. To truly do biblical justice, we have to go beyond ourselves. To truly do biblical justice, we are going to have to be people of great compassion. To do biblical justice, we are going to have to be people of great generosity. We are going to have to be people who are sacrificial. We are going to have to be people who care for others and meet their needs, even taking their own plight into our hands at the expense of our own rights, at the expense of what is fair to us in our own minds. We're going to have to lay that down if we ever want to be people who practice steadfast love, righteousness, and biblical justice. And we're not even talking yet about what that looks like for us. I want us to get there. That'll be more of our focus next week. What does it look like for the church of Agape to practice biblical justice in this community where God has placed us? But before we can ever get there, you and I have to be convinced in our hearts that we know God is calling us to this in His Word because it's going to require a lot of us. Not only that, but we don't have a great understanding of what justice really is. Because much of what we understand about justice has come either from the culture or from a twisted form of the gospel. In the early 20th century, late 19th century, there popped up this movement under the Christian banner of a group of people who began to really focus on trying to apply Christian ethics to social problems. They would see things like poverty, poor nutrition, uneducated people, alcoholism, crime, even war. And they would try and take Christian ethics and apply that to those social problems to resolve those problems. Within this movement, there was even some thought that Christ could not return until all of the social problems had been eradicated, which is not true. But what happened within that movement over time is that as they were meeting needs, which was not a bad thing at all, they began to emphasize taking care of social issues while they de-emphasize doctrines like sin and salvation and heaven and hell. And this has often been called the social gospel. And even today, it still exists and it thrives. And it focuses a lot on the plight of inequality among human beings because of race or orientation. And I say again to you that those are not bad things. 
But the problem with that gospel is it's been detached from God's righteousness, His biblical justice and steadfast love. And we don't get to pick and choose the attributes of God that we want to embrace. We take God as He is or we leave Him. That's the choice the Bible gives us. We don't get to create Him in our image. There is no biblical justice without biblical righteousness. There is no biblical justice without God's moral standards. Now, we probably say amen to that. But Agape, here's the problem. I think in response to the social gospel, the church has swung that pendulum way too far in the other direction. Because what we have done is we have emphasized the doctrines of sin and salvation and heaven and hell at the expense of showing compassion and working for equity where we can. We have emphasized these right doctrines, but we have separated them from God's other attributes. We share truths with people and tell them about God's moral standards, and then we say, go, be warm and well fed. In other words, good luck with all of those needs that you have. And we have ignored the plight of the needy among us. I believe we're a nation of laws. And I think it is right and biblical to follow those laws. But we've become so angry at some political issues that we failed to ignore that God has brought to us the world and we have failed to evangelize them and love them and care for them because we're caught up in our politics. If we have become a recipient of the steadfast love of God, then we're going to share it. And if we're not sharing it, we're not practicing justice in accordance to God's standards. Look at these people from Jeremiah. They had detached worship from their lifestyle. A lifestyle of oppressing others so that they could benefit themselves. Practicing justice requires of us three things. Probably more, but for our notes today, three things I want us to think about. One, it requires that we understand and embrace God's story of redemption. It requires that we understand and embrace God's story of redemption. If you have a Bible, flip over to Exodus 34 for a moment. In Exodus 34, Moses has asked something of God. He has said to God, will you show me your glory? In other words, God, will you show me what you're like? Will you show me who you really are? And in response to that, God hides Moses in the cleft of this mountain and he passes by Moses. And as he does, he declares to Moses who he is. And I want you to listen in verses 6 and 7 or read along how God describes himself. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Church, let me ask you the most important question that we have to face when it comes to the gospel. How is God a God who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, but refuses to clear the guilty when we're the guilty. How does He clear us? How does He forgive us if He refuses to clear us? Now, let me just say, some of us, some people struggle with the fact that God even says, I I refuse to clear the guilty. There's a whole world that says, why can't God just... Wave his hand and say, sin is no big deal. I've used this analogy with you many times. But if you heard of a crime 
You heard of someone who was kidnapped and their life was taken and someone was caught and they were brought before a judge and the judge with that person standing in their courtroom looked at them and said, you took someone else's life, but for the most part you've been pretty good so I'm going to let you go. We would cry out against that judge and say they're not just. Where's justice for the family? Where's justice for that person? You and I are guilty before a holy, righteous God. And God won't clear the guilty, yet God forgives sin. How is that possible? And Paul said in Romans 3 that it is possible one way, by the cross of Jesus. Paul said in Romans 3 that on the cross, God showed His righteousness. God showed His justice. Jesus died because all have sinned and fallen short of His glory. But now those who have fallen short of His glory can be justified by redemption because on the cross, God punished Jesus for the sins that we had committed. And so that picture of the cross is a picture of His grace and kindness and forgiveness and love and mercy and also of His righteous justice. That is why Paul was able to say, God is just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. That is how John in 1 John chapter 1 was able to say, if you and I confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. We might say, well, yes, if God forgives me of my sins, He's faithful. But how is it justice for Him to forgive me of my sins? Because Jesus took your sins and the punishment for it on the cross. God is a just judge. He will not try two people for the same crime. If you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be justified before God. He is faithful and He is just to declare you innocent before Him because of the cross of Jesus. And if you and I don't understand that, if you and I don't understand that justice starts at the cross, that justice is not saying sin is no big deal, but justice begins with God working redemption for anyone who turns to Jesus, then we'll never understand biblical justice and we'll never be able to live it out. We will always live out some form of it that is missing the mark. That every person on the face of the earth deserves death apart from God, but that God has made a way for them to be justified through the cross of Jesus. Secondly, for us to practice justice requires that we know God intimately. That we must know God intimately. We've already said this earlier from Jeremiah 9, when God said, that if you're going to boast, boast that you know me. Boast that you have knowledge and understanding of me. And I said then that knowledge and understanding indicates intimacy. That results from relationship. Well, James says something very similar. In James chapter 1, he says that if a person will look into the perfect law of liberty, God's Word, and they will persevere, being not someone who just hears it, but being someone who does it, who acts, then they will be blessed in their doing. In other words, the way that you know what to do is by relationship with God. How are you going to know what a just act is? How are you going to know what you should do when you see injustice in your life or in your community? Only by knowing God and His nature. And immediately after that, when James says, if you'll look into the perfect law of liberty, and you'll be someone who hears the Word and does it, you'll do justice. And then he says, this is true justice, this is true religion. Take care of the vulnerable. Take care of the fatherless. Take care of the widows. That is a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. 
Not one that just causes us to go to worship and do some religious acts, but one that causes us to emulate God in steadfast love and righteousness and justice. And finally, practicing justice requires that we act. Practicing justice will require that we act. Psalm 10. You can turn there now or just write this down, but I'd like for you to read it at some point. In Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18, the psalmist says, Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted, and You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. This psalmist writes and he says, Mankind, in their sin, strike terror in the hearts of people. They work injustice. They oppress people, the vulnerable. They deceive each other for their own gain. And we see that. We see it all around us. We watch the news, we hear of things that are happening, and we think, how? How can people do that to each other? But this psalmist says there's hope, and that hope is that God hears the desire of the afflicted. And He doesn't just hear them to hear, but He hears them to act, and He will strengthen their heart. He will incline His ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So, Agape, here's my question. How is God going to do that? Is it not His church? Is it not His people? Now, yes, understand that one day we will exist in a kingdom of perfect justice. When Jesus returns and Jesus reigns, there will be perfect righteousness, perfect justice on all the earth, in the new heaven, the new earth. But this psalm is not indicating to those who are oppressed and afflicted, simply wait one day, the Messiah will come and justice will happen. Obviously, all of Scripture points to that, but this psalmist indicates that God will hear and God will act. And His primary act was in the cross. That's the beginning of biblical justice. But it continues that throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God calls His church to justice, to act for the oppressed and the needy, to help the vulnerable, to meet needs, to show His steadfast love. And if God delights in the practicing of these things, should we not delight in the practicing of these things? Should this not be the boast of our life? If God gives us the opportunity to make a million dollars, great. Should it not be that our boast is, we know the Lord and He has given us resources to do justice in our lifetime. Biblical justice. And if He never gives us a million dollars, do we not believe that He has provided all that we need to do the acts of justice that He's called us to do? Do we not think that it may not be until the day we step out in faith to do what we feel like He's calling us to do, that He actually provides what we need. We're a people who want to see it all up front. We want to know how it's all going to work out first. Faith is stepping out in obedience and trusting God. When He tells us to move, we move. So this is what I want us to explore. Sam, you guys can come up. You guys can bring the lights down if you will. We're going to end in worship.
We're going to pray in response to God's Word. We're going to sing together. We're going to pray for one another. If you need prayer, Rob's going to come in just a moment and lead us into some groups to pray for one another. But Agape, listen, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you. Consider this the basis of biblical justice. Consider what you've seen in the Word. Consider this call. Pray about this this week. Look at it in the Word. We're going to talk next week. We're going to think through maybe how is God calling us to begin to practice justice more in our community? What have we already been doing? What is He leading us into? We're going to look at those things. We're going to see and act how is even in this church now God calling individual families to do justice and how do we support them? But before we get there, we must become convinced this is God's call. So would you... Would you pray? Would you seek God? Would you ask Him to place these truths on your heart and convince you of what biblical justice is and prepare your heart for what He may call you to do? Let's do that this morning. Let's pray that this morning and throughout our week. If today... You have heard this story of redemption. That Christ has come that we could be forgiven in mercy and love, but under the justice of God. And you realize that you've never truly understood that before. I want to ask you today, would you follow Jesus with your life? And before you leave here today, would you be willing to talk to somebody about what He's calling you to. And before you leave here today, would you be willing to speak with someone about what it would look like to follow Jesus and be baptized? If you want to come find me before the service is over, you can. You can come and talk to Nick or Rob. If you come talk to me, I'll get your information and we'll we'll get together this week. People of Jeremiah, God was talking, but they weren't listening. He was calling, but they weren't answering. Answer Him in His call. Listen when He speaks. Follow Jesus and be baptized as a disciple.